I've always been fascinated by the notion of a story that sort of moves into itself. So you have a kind of A, B, C, D, Z, A structure. I wrote a novel in that form, early novel, The Echo Chamber, <clears throat> but also by the notion of A into B or B into A, which I send when I'm making notes myself to put as a kind of X, uh, so that there is this sort of crossover. Now, why am I interested in that? That's a bit more complicated, and I'm not sure I quite understand it. I think it has to do with two things that may be connected. One is love of impossible objects, those that uh, <coughs> Richard Gregory has uh, worked with and uh, illuminated. I always find that fascinating. But also by the unheimly or uncanny feeling that's produced by realizing an impossible object in a naturalistic medium-like storytelling novels or, or, or short stories. That's one element, this thing of finding it peculiarly exciting and interesting and wanting to try and convey that uncanny sense to, to a reader. And the other is connected with Valérie's famous remark of <coughs> La Marquise Sartia Saint Coeur, with his sort of shorthand way of talking about how you escape the merely anecdotal quality of most narratives as he saw it. Why not the Marquise went out at six, or why not the Duchess went out at four, and so on. So La Marquise sortit à cinq heures, the Marquise left at five, is a nice way of sort of describing the arbitrary aspect of uh, most narratives, most realistic narratives, which um, I've always found one of the problems of writing at all, this sense that, you know, why is one just saying that and not saying something else? So the desire to escape from the <coughs> anecdotal and to make my fiction not the recounting of an anecdote, but perhaps the enacting of an event. The enacting of an event. Or perhaps from another point of view, to make of what one is doing an object rather than an anecdote. An object that you can hold up and examine <coughs> and walk around. You can see how this links with some of the things we talked about earlier. And I think this is what excited me about about Grier when I first encountered him uh, at 1920. This sense of the novel as the enacting of an event, as well as the feeling of strangeness or uncanniness that his early novels ex ex <coughs> exuded. Maurice Blanchot, in a beautiful little essay, described them as being uniformly illuminated, but we have no clear sense of where the illumination comes from. And of course, Rebrier's very first novel, Les Gommes, was a modern version of Oedipus Rex, the archetypal work that moves forward into itself, into its own beginning. Oedipus, the detective who set himself to solve the riddle of who is responsible for the blight affecting the city, uncovers clue after clue and eventually discovers that it's himself. In Rebrier, too, the detective turns out to be the murderer, that the murder he's investigating turns out not to have taken place at the beginning of the narrative, as the reader and everyone else seem to think, 
but to actually be brought about precisely by the investigation. Of course, I'm not Rambillier. I lack his clear engineer's mind. So my novel took a rather different turn. Because I was trying to get into it, this sense that I wanted a narrative that somehow would move forward into itself. It drove me completely crazy. Till I enlisted the help of a philosopher friend, John Mepham, who produced very quickly a diagram for me of a Marxist analysis of the production chain of shoes originating in Taiwan. <laughs> and I saw how to do it. <laughs> with, uh, with my story, Brothers, which is a story about the X shape, uh, it was a bit easier. Two brothers, one hiding away in the country, the other driving down from London to persuade him to return. And the start here with a country brother, as he imagines, as it were, his town brother approaching, or are we actually with the town brother, as he imagines his country brother waiting for him? Or are we with the country brother imagining he's the town brother imagining, and so on? The story doesn't say. I think what I was after was precisely this merging and separation and then merging again of the two. Now what about the variation on this X shape? Could one do it with not two characters, but with four? Now at first sight, the idea of fourness seems very static. I've been working, I am working, on a novel that deals in an oblique way with the fascinating and eccentric Italian composer Giacinto Scelsi, 1906-88. Scelsi seems to have had a profound knowledge of Buddhism and to have spent time in India, though people now think he probably never did. Anyway, in one of his notes, there are three volumes of his writings that uh, are extremely interesting and that uh, Jonathan Harvey put me onto. Uh, in one of his notes on Buddhist geometry, he argues that Buddhism moves from the triangle to the pentangle, bypassing the square. Because while all other forms, from triangle to dodecahedron and beyond, are dynamic and approximate ever more to that most dynamic of things, the circle, uh, the square is irredeemably static. And his disciple, Luciano Martinis, writes about a conversation with him, seeing that I was puzzled. He explained that he considered the symmetry of the square made of it the figure of the static par excellence, a kind of stutter in the evolution towards perfection. It's the refuge, the receptacle of mediocrity, he explained, the place where most of mankind feels secure. In effect, he goes on, it's the symbolic form of the tamasic state the force of inertia that Sri Aurobindo talks about had to be avoided at all costs. And indeed, when Chelsea came to write a string quartet, all five of his quartets have been recorded by the Arditis. When he came to write his first string quartet, he treated the strings not as four separate voices in a quadrilogue, but as one instrument of 16 strings. How then does one go from two characters to four and keep the dynamism. What about this? Not A into B, but AB and CD becoming AC and BD. AB and CD becoming AC and BD. Then you have 
a dynamic structure consisting of four players rather than two. You have, let's say, two couples who cross over and exchange partners. I tried this out in a novel I wrote in the 90s called Dinner Hotel Garden. <clears throat> but there it got entangled with stuff about the Holocaust and about memory. And so more recently, I thought I'd have another go and try to do it in a purer form. And the result was a novel called Making Mistakes, which came out in 2009. And it's this I want to say a few words about now. Making Mistakes had its immediate origins in A Night at the Opera. Not the Marx Brothers film, but a visit to Glyndebourne with a musician friend to see the recent production of Mozart's Cosifatute. As the opera came to an end, my friend turned to me and said, that's not the end of the story, is it? Now, why did she say this? Cosifatute, as I'm sure you all know, is Mozart's tightest and most perfect opera. It tells the story of two couples, Ferrando and Dorabella, Giuliano and Fiorentinigi, the women sisters, the men officers and friends who are betrothed to each other, and of a bet made with the two men by an older man, sort of 18th century philosopher, Don Alfonso, that he can, in 24 hours, make each of the two women fall in love with the other's fiancé. The philosopher wins the wager, of course, but this is comedy and not tragic, and he does so with the help of the spirited serving maid, Christina, and a great deal of farcical dressing up. More importantly, the couples brought face to face with what has happened, return each to his and her respective lover, all acknowledging in a final ensemble that this is just how women are, because he fucked tutte. Now, the operas had a checkered history. Disapproved of by the 19th century for its cynicism, it's been much revived in recent years. But the feeling has been that the final reconciliation is tacked on and forced. Mozart's music, it's been suggested, tells us that the newfound love of Dorabella for Giulielmo, and especially the love of the much more serious and troubled Fiorentinigi for Ferrando, is far deeper and more genuine than that between the original set of lovers. And that the ending is thus a forcing back into what society wants of what the heart rebels against. This is, we could say, the romantic reading. Fiordinigia, the great artist of the second act, as she struggles against and then finally succumbs to the pressure put on her by Ferrando, so it's suggested, has discovered a passion more real and more lasting than her original love in that comes for Giuliano. And Mozart cannot have seriously meant us to believe that at the end all return to their original positions as though nothing had happened. This reading is far more in tune with our attitudes today, and it's the one strongly hinted at by the Glyndebourne production I saw, and which led to my friend's remark that this was not the end of the story. In other words, that far from happily returning to their original pairings, these two, at any rate, probably all four, would find a way to live out their heart's secret desires, which had been revealed to them less by the machinations of Don Alfonso than by the very music Mozart gave them to sing. Così in this reading, Prefigus Trista. But such is Mozart's musical and dramatic genius. There are actually three, not two, possibilities inherent in the opera. 
as the obvious or surface version in which the women will always stray, wisdom, reason, and intellect can help to overcome this. There's the romantic version in which something has been released in Act 2 cannot simply be put back in this box. But it's also possible, this is the third, it's also possible that Mozart in the opera is opening up a space for the recognition of fashion, for the reasons of the heart as opposed to the reasons of reason in Pascal's formulation. That this is recognized as only a possibility, and perhaps one that, though it has to be acknowledged, has also, in the grown-up person, to be renounced. And this would fit in with the theme of Mozart's two other collaborations with Daponte, the marriage of Figaro and its last great act, in which the lustful count comes to understand that his middle-aged wife has charms which the young Susanna can never match, and with Don Giovanni, where we see what happens when you give free reign to your quite natural desires. Mozart, on this reading, is neither a Puritan nor a Wagnerian avant la lettre. Like the Shakespeare of Twelfth Night, he explores the various conflicts of desire and duty in order to come to a richer view of human possibility, one that transcends both repression and the giving in to every desire. Now this, as you no doubt have realized by now, is the Mozart I favor, the Mozart I believe I discern in the dramas and the music. It's a Mozart who has much in common with other artists and thinkers who had one foot in the 18th century and one in the 19th. Goethe, whose elective affinities, and he was talking about earlier, is the other great exploration of the crossing over of two couple. Byron, Pushkin, and Kierkegaard. It doesn't matter that Mozart died before the 19th century started, and Kierkegaard was born in 1812. They share a sensibility, which it seems to me is neither that of Pope and Handel, nor that of Keats and Beethoven, but which recognizes, as it were, the imperatives of both. Which is why, while I was excited by my friend's remark that the story was by no means finished at the end of the opera, I felt that somehow it was too crude, too simplistic, to go along with the thrust of a Glyndebourne production and write a sequel in which the two pairs of lovers would indeed change partners for good, recognizing the imperatives of their hearts. And as I was pondering all this, it came to me that I should start my novel with the two couples having already switched. In my terms, A is now with D and C with B. I've already decided to call my characters Anthony, always called Tony, so as not to make the ABCD element too obvious, Beatrice, <laughs> Charlie, and Dorothy. So their initial pairing of Tony with Bear and Charlie with Dot is now ancient history. But recalled in the first chapter by my philosopher, called as in Mozart Alfonso, the occasion is a dinner party given by Tony and Dot, which is interrupted by a phone call from Dot's sister Bear to say she is, once again, leaving her husband Charlie, and could she come and shelter with them for a few days. The rest of the novel would be devoted to a kind of dance, which would see Tony eventually partnering Bear and Charlie Dot, returning them, as it were, to their original Mozartian-Lapontian pairings. 
but you're telling them nothing order to moralize about the ways of women or of men. My motto, I realized, as I worked on the book, had to be not cosi fan tutte, but there is no such thing as a mistake. So that the title, Making Mistakes, would come to be seen as ironic. Or rather, not so much ironic as symptomatic of the kinds of cliches which are part of the moral fabric of modern lives. And which the book would, I hoped, deconstruct or reveal to be a glossing over of a much deeper and perhaps more uncomfortable truth. For as you can imagine, all four protagonists are much given, especially in the later stages of the book, to talking about the mistakes they've made, the mistakes they thought they had made in their youth, the mistakes they did indeed make in trying to rectify those first mistakes, and so on. What Alfonso and life has to teach them is that we demean ourselves by talking about our past in terms of mistakes. Rather, these are the choices we all make all the time in our lives. And they are what have made us what we are today. To talk about the mis mistakes is to dismiss our past selves, and by contrast, to put too much value on our present, wise selves. The truth is, Alfonso says, there's no such thing as a mistake, but that suggests its opposite, a correct choice. And who is to say what is correct and what is not? We can none of us stand outside our lives and say with certainty what was and was not a mistake. What we can say is that our lives consist of choices and the living with the consequences of those choices to which are added others and yet others until we die. But is it not possible that Mozart's own title Cosifantuti is similarly ironic, similarly to be understood as the kind of cliché which the opera as we experience it is meant to make us question. I'm emboldened to think so by my recent reading of a fine essay by Philip Kitcher and Richard Schacht on Don Giovanni in a collection that Lydia has edited with Daniel Herbitz, The Don Giovanni Moment. To simplify a rich and complex argument, they suggest that what is at issue in Don Giovanni is the nature of authority. Don Ottavio, Don Anna, and Don Elvira take it for granted that their highly moralistic stand is the right one, and the finale would seem to bear them out. But, but the authors argue they are merely mouthing the platitudes of a tradition which is passing away before their eyes. There are really only two figures in the opera who have unquestioned authority, who are given that authority by Mozart's music, Don Giovanni himself and the statue of the Commendatore. Like Lear's, theirs is an authority they do not need to flaunt. It is innate. But one is surely as little to be listened to as Lear himself, and the other is utterly rigid, stone. On this reading, authority and the awe owed to authorities in question from first to last, as it is in King Lear. And they read the finale as Mozart quite deliberately making us feel the gap between what we've experienced in the course of the opera and how that experience is now summed up. 
So it's to force us to ask ourselves where it is that we stand. A Mozart, they say, and here they're contrasting him with Wagner, a Mozart or is something we are going to have to learn to live without. Our desire for it is an addiction of which we must somehow cure ourselves if we are going to come to terms with life in a healthy human way. Don Giovanni may be thought of as a contribution to that cure. Now this emboldens me in my long-held belief that something similar is at play in the finale to Cosine. The subtitle of the opera, as you know, is The School for Lovers. But the opera provides a lesson not so much in the ways of love as in the, as in the importance of suppleness in life and in learning how to live with a provision. In that, it and the other two da Ponte operas are, as I said earlier, very like Twelfth Night, where again the deliberately clonking ending forces us to realize that there's no such thing in this life as an ending, and that openness and flexibility, not the assertion of authority, whether lordly authority as with Orsino, or moral authority as with Malvolio, are the key requirements for a good and happy life. I hope that in my own small, in its own small way, my making mistakes plows a similar furrow as it reveals how our natural instincts to say that we've made a mistake spring from both arrogance and pusillanimity. Arrogance in imagining that now we know what is not a mistake and pusillanimity in feeling that we always have to apologize in turn to a superior authority. The sad truth is there is no superior authority. Not your friend, the professor of linguistics. Not your friend, the professor of philosophy. Not your analyst, not your father. There are, however, fellow pilgrims and works of art. And your mother? <laughs> <laughs> that comes with a question. <laughs> not for the first time in my life, I've had what I felt was a profound insight forced upon me by my work, only to discover later that it had already been anticipated by Proust. And this is what happened here. I wrote Making Mistakes in 2006-8, and it was published in 2009. Recently, I've been rereading Allons des jeunes filles en fleurs, what's cut on grief called Within a Budding Grove. And I came across the following passage, which is the passage you have. In Steele, the painter Marcel has got to know at Balbec, whose work is to prove so important to his development as both a man and an artist, has just revealed to Marcel that he was none other than the ridiculous figure known as Monsieur Biche, who had been a member of Madame Verdurin's Petit Cercle in the old days. Marcel can't believe it, and instead proceeds to deliver what is in effect a little secular sermon. There is no man, he says, however wise, who has not at some period of his youth said things and lived a life, the memory of which is so unpleasant to him that he would gladly expunge it. And yet he ought not entirely to regret it, because he cannot be certain that he has indeed become a wise man, insofar as it is possible for any of us to be wise, unless he's passed through all the patches or unwholesome incarnations by which that ultimate stage must be preceded. I know that there are young people, the sons and grandsons of distinguished men, 
whose masters have instilled into them nobility of mind and moral refinement from their school days. They may perhaps have nothing to retract from their past lives. They could publish a signed account of everything they've ever said or done, but they are poor creatures, feeble descendants and doctrinaires, and their wisdom is negative and sterile. Ce sont de pauvres esprits, descendants sans force de doctrinaires, et de qui la sagesse est négative et stérile. We do not receive wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through a wilderness which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us, for our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. The lives that you admire, the attitudes that seem noble to you, have not been shaped by a paterfamilias or a schoolmaster. They've sprung from the very different beginnings, having been influenced by everything evil or commonplace that prevailed round about them. They represent a struggle and a victory. I can see that the picture uh, of what we are at at an earlier stage may not be recognizable and cannot certainly be pleasing to contemplate in later life. But we must not repudiate it, for it is a proof that we have really lived, that it is in accordance with the laws of life and of the mind that we have, from the common elements of life, extracted something that transcends them. This is a sermon about life, but it's also a sermon about art, about the art of today. What I learned from Proust when I first read him at 17, and it was a liberating blast that transformed my life forever, was the rule that you do not need when you start a novel to have a great plot or a profound thought or moral to expound. What you need is to trust enough in your ability in time and in the material to plunge in with nothing more than a rhythm and a desire. The precise contours are both certainly hidden from you, but the sense of them there driving you forward. There is no father to guide you, no Virgil to show you the way. There are only other pilgrims who can provide you with comfort because they've been there themselves. Pilgrims like Proust himself, or in this case, Elstida. What this passage now brings home to me is how Proust, and indeed all great art since the Romantics, in all great art since the Romantics, life and art are deeply intertwined. Not as modern biographers want to suggest, because the details of an artist's life can be clues to their art, but because the same imperatives apply to both. We do not receive wisdom, we must discover it for ourselves after a journey through the wilderness which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us. The lives you admire, the attitudes that seem noble to you, have not been shaped by that familias or a schoolmaster. They sprung from very different beginnings. They represent a struggle and a victory. Ethics and aesthetics cannot be separated. The Proustian law applies to both. It's an exciting law to put into practice. But it's a difficult one. Not to have a model and a sure guide, to have to rely on instinct and on trust in time and the material is hard indeed. The upside, though, where art is concerned, is that if you can carry it through, you will end up not with a story but with an object. I'd even say a moving object, moving in both senses of the word. Something that cannot be pinned down because it's always in motion and something that moves the reader, because it is alive. 
So my hope is that making mistakes would be closer in the reading to listening to the performance of a quartet than to the reading of a novel by Balzac or even Tolstoy. Thank you. <laughs>